0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guest today is Tyler Sonicson, the author of Capitals of Punk, DC, Paris, and the Urban Underground. And the book was published by Paul Macmillan in 2019. Hi there, Tyler. Hey, Roxanne. How are you doing?
1: I mean, I'm doing about as well as, you know, one could be expected to be doing in these, uh, in, in, our, in this age that we live in. Thank you very much for having me on.
0: I'm really grateful that you were able to take the time to speak with me about this book, which, you know, before we were recording, I was saying that this period that you cover in the book from the sort of early 80s through to the end of the decade or so that, you know, certainly has legacies up to the present is really like the period of my youth. So reading this was both fascinating for me as somebody who works on France, um, but also as someone who knows or had some kind of contact um, and experience of the the history and the the stories that you explore in this book. Could you tell us, Tyler, how you got interested in working on France? This is a New Books in French Studies podcast, so that connection is important to us, and especially how you got interested in working on the French punk scene?
1: Well, before I was actively a geographer, I mean, that's the area of academia I've found myself in. I've lived in DC for a long time in my twenties and I when I first moved there it was two thousand five and I started to go to shows and you'd go to you know Fort Reno summer concert series and you would see Ian Mackay hanging out there. You would look over under a tree and see the rhythm section from the dismemberment plan. You'd see Eric and Joe sitting over there just sort of hanging out. And it was almost like being in this weird little town like this kind of punk rock sort of fantasy community, except it was it was a real place. So that all together sort of created this curiosity in me when I was younger. And then I left in 2011 to, to reenter academia. So I turned back to the dark side, so to speak, from there. But then when, when I was trying to think of ideas for my PhD dissertation or what I was going to study as a PhD student at Tennessee, I kept on kind of going back to Washington, D.C. That was how I came to at least looking at the hardcore scene as an academic, the France I, mean, I was always as interested in the French punk scene in as much as you'd be interested in the Spanish punk scene or any other mainland European punk scene. Because when you're when you're a punk fan or a hardcore fan, and you obviously know this, the idea that you have to dig for something makes it all that much more interesting. So there is obviously that the French music scene which was kind of, you know, I knew that it was there and I'm sure that in Even before I was aware of bands like Prohibition and Burning Heads, I was aware that there was something going on, but I just didn't really have much access to it. Mm. But in 2010, I went to Paris for the first time. And this friend from D.C. named Ryan who told me about this gig that I had to search for, this is in 2010, so no smartphones. I didn't even have cell phone, uh, uh, like a working cell phone at this point. So I had to just sort of wander around these back streets in Eastern Paris. I think it was in Belleville. And I found this bar called the peaks and it was this mm-hmm. show in the basement and the band started to play. And I started to feel at home because they sounded a lot like they were from DC. They, they had that, th- those types of motifs in their music that made them sound sort of like Jawbox or the most secret method or slant six and bands like that. And then I met them after the show and we're all hanging out and all these people started asking me all these questions about Ian Mackay and Fugazi. Will Fugazi reunite like I was their friend or something like that? Just because I was from DC. And it started to occur to me, and that was the early genesis of this of this book, because it started to occur to me, what is it about DC that that really captures the imagination of punks around the world? I mean, granted, you know, France is not the other, France is not the other side of the globe necessarily. It still is very much the West and most French punks or majority of French punk fans are somewhat well-versed in English. And a lot of French punk music is recorded, is sung in English. Um, So it's not, it's not necessarily like looking at say the, the, the skin, the skinhead scene in Indonesia. uh, But that is something that I've actually moved into because I've met scholars who are, Scholars like this book has brought me to uh, scholars from Southeast Asia as well. And I realized that it's not just France. It's not just the West. It is a global phenomenon. So, again, that was the early that was the genesis of it. And then um, I I sort of, you know, had that show in my mind as a treasured memory. And then when I started to write my proposal for what I was what I was going to do as a dissertation, that really stuck out to me as, okay, what is it about punk music that alters the way people think about Washington, D.C.? Because what is it about, you know, Minor Threat or Bad Brains or bands like that that really make make Washington, D.C. as an idea, whether or not someone has actually visited it? It kind of transforms the city from this very sort of like dry place where a bunch of wealthy elite politicians and businessmen operate to a place where a bunch of really cool stuff happens in someone's mind, like the imaginary of the city changes influenced by punk music and I started to wonder well could the same thing happen for Paris like if you were exposed to or if you had greater knowledge or understanding of you know the 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 oi scene in Paris and the in Paris and northern France in the early 80s and how that turned into the hardcore scene and how that circulation happened so that was where the the early idea for the book came from
0: what i love about the story of how you came to this project tyler is how illustrative it is of the story that you tell in the book, um, I just love the fact that you know you're American and you had this experience of uh, DC punk uh, and this music scene and this underground scene, and then you know years later end up being a, a graduate student working uh, towards a dissertation in geography, and you go to a punk show <laughs> in France, in Paris, and that that somehow brings you to this project, and I just It's it's the story you tell at the beginning of the book. And then by the end of the book, I understood how significant that story was. And like I could situate and contextualize your story because I'd read about the kind of trajectory and history that you that you explore in the book, the book. And I and I said this earlier, you know, before we started recording that. I kept thinking of you as a historian in part because uh, even though I try to speak to people across the disciplines, I often end up speaking to a lot of historians and I am a historian, so I'm surrounded by them all the time. But you characterize the book as a, as a music geography. And I guess for those people who might not be so familiar with what that means, I wonder if you could just say a few words about like what that translates into as a, as a kind of method and approach of music geography.
1: First of all, I would absolutely be a historian if I hadn't become a geographer, because a lot of what I study within geography is very based in history. I love the archive. It's not really a coincidence that so many people who came up in the punk scene became librarians. Um, (laughs) In fact, in the process of doing zine research in D.C., I went to the University of Maryland Library and I worked closely with John Davis, who was in he was he was in Q and Not You and Georgie James. He works at the library now, and hmm. Vin Novara, who was a hardcore drummer from New York, is also a librarian. I think it's that, and same thing with with Discord Records began as a way to document the scene because Ian MacKay's family and I go into a lot of detail about this in the book. The right. MacKay family in D.C. were, they like his mother was a writer. His parents were both writers. It was either his mother or his grandmother who wrote a column na- under the pen name Dorothy Disney. And he had all these tapes. He just had tapes and tapes and tapes, like a massive archive of couples who were interviewed about their marriages for this magazine. And even as a little kid, he got really intrigued by just making this archive accessible. And within geography, some very prominent uh, cultural geographers like Yifu Tuan is one example. I quote him all the time in saying that we have to render the archive accessible to future generations. And I think access is something that that hardcore and punk have always really and I've always really centered and focused on. Anyway, there's that there's the there's the history side of it and the archive side of it that I think is really important to keep in mind. But then as a geographer specifically, your question about musical geography, just the relationship between place and music, uh, how place mm-hmm. and scenes influence the development of music that kind of freezes those moments in time and place in amber in a sense. You know, if you listen to those early minor threats, seven inches. I mean, those are what Discord Records was started as, a documentation, a means to document what was going on. Because at the time in 1980, no, 1980, 1981, no one, who, no one from the so-called music industry really even knew this was going on. They, they, they didn't know about anything that was going on in D.C., if you, if you were to look at the musical geography of D.C. Hardcore, you have to look at, you know, the social and cultural and spatial dynamics of the city in 1979, 1980. You know, what gave rise to the so-called Big Bang, which is a term that I borrow from Craig Wedron from Shutter to Think. He used it when, he, when I was chatting with him. He said the Big Bang of Hardcore in 1979, when Bad Brains uh, started to play those Rock Against Racism shows at the Valley Green Housing Complex in the southeast. Southeast DC, I should say, which is, uh, I think, at the time, I don't know what demographically where it is now, but it was 90 plus percent African-American at the time. The, but, but that's an example of musical geography, just looking at the relationship between place and music. Because even now, when people argue, or they might ask the question, well, with the internet kind of changing the dynamics of, of space and place is musical geography just as important and i argue that it's even more important now because you know obviously in hip-hop for example which very which heavily influenced underground music in dc both obviously dc's own hip-hop scene at the time as well as the hardcore scene the hardcore kids were really into hip-hop and go-go the go-go scene obviously was a big influence on hip-hop so that the big the big question is representing even though People might think, oh, place is less and less important, or studying the dynamics of place are less and less important. I think it actually gives a whole new meaning to representing a place where you're from. So I think that uh, musical geography is something that, first of all, it's it's ubiquitous. Like all music is recorded somewhere, so you have to keep in that you know all music is both recorded in a place, but it's also influenced by the person who writes the song who lives in a place.
0: So I'm gonna ask you an impossible question, Tyler. Um, oh shoot! <laughs> I mean, I feel like we could talk about this for hours and hours, but just for those people who are, you know, not familiar with this culture, subculture, underground whole business, whether it's in mm-hmm. DC, Paris, or anywhere else, we think we know what we mean when we say punk. <laughs> mm-hmm. But as someone who tried to explain this to a 10 year old recently, um, you know, because I use the term for all kinds of things. Like I use it when I'm cooking, <laughs> you <know>? you <laughs> um, like, um, like when I'm not following a recipe, I say that oh, you know, yeah. you know, somebody somebody's like, what, how did you make that? I'm like, I don't know. You know, it's just I, I, it's just punk. So I do that a lot. And so I, I want to, I guess, not get you to define punk for every for all time and for every, you know, idea and place and stuff like that. But just in this book that it's like music and sa- a sound with the way something sounds. But it's also like there's a whole material culture around it, an ethos. Can you say a little bit about that for well, not just for people who don't know, but for people who think about this, like how punk is operating in the book as a as a thing that you're trying to understand differently, um, ask different questions about, access in different ways by focusing on DC and Paris. Well,
1: punk is the free space. That's what Ian Mackay said. Oh. And that's something that I've quoted. I probably quoted that line that he said during a QA I did with him. Last year at a conference in DC, it was last, it was April 2019, and I did a and A with him. It was right before the book came out, and he's done so many interviews. I mean, he almost exists like outside of Koriki, which is uh, the album he put out last year with um, with Amy Farina and uh, uh, Joe Lally, and obviously running the day to day operations of the label. He does so many interviews, and it's because he understands the importance, like whenever someone who, some teenager who's trying to write a zine in contacts him, he will most likely, if he has, if he's able to, to squeeze time together, he will do it. And I think just one of the things, you know, like Ian Mackay himself saying that obviously carries a certain amount of gravity, but it means, it means a lot because what punk is, you know, obviously it changes as you, as you get older, you know, you and I have both been, you know, you and I are both, To varying degrees, I feel like based on what you told me before we before our interview, you probably were like you probably went to a lot more punk and hardcore shows when you were a teenager in in your 20s than I did. But um, but I tried to I tried to catch up as I got older. But I think obviously the definition is going to vary from person to person, you know, but what a lot of it usually boils down to is the idea that punk is the free space. It's the space where there aren't where you're not Bound to the expectation of earning money for your art, you're not bound to where you can create art for art's sake. You're not bound to expectations. You're not bound to selling x number of tickets, or you're considered a failure on on some commercial level. You're not bound to producing something that you know a, vo- a voice coach, like a Broadway voice coach, would hear and 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 cringe at because there are so many. My my partner and I were talking about this recently. There are so many legendary vocalists who would not have gotten a second you know you know like some of the most influential vocalists of all time who would have not gotten a second audition on American Idol because of that standardization mm-hmm. that happens in the mainstream uh, Jacques Brel, <coughs> cough anyway speaking speaking of French language you know he's Belgian but French language legends um vocal legends and uh, that was someone who I actually came to sort of in a very roundabout way through my French punk research, I started listening to a lot of chanson music. I don't know if your experience was similar, but you realize just how the most influential vote voices, the most influential artists are the outsiders. And you actually get to see that in action when you're part of a punk scene, you're part of a DIY scene. You know, you get to watch the the people that don't fit in anywhere else. So they have to reside in that free space in order to exist and be creative. So I guess that's the closest thing I have to an answer to that impossible question.
0: Yeah, I think it's just useful to think about it, especially in terms of the, the sources that you explore, you know, everything from the way music sounds that we would characterize it, you know, as punk to, you know, how the people who make that music, produce it, act it out, uh, live their lives in all kinds of other ways. And then, yeah, keep records of like build an archive mm-hmm. of all this stuff of music of flyers for shows, of zines, like that. It's um, that the culture that you're exploring and the materials that you're exploring, you know, right down to the conversations and interviews that you had with people who participated in DC and in Paris and in these scenes. That it's much bigger than not that it's not big enough to talk about the a particular type of music that's that's made and performed and recorded but that it's bigger than that, that it's about an entire um, community and all the things that that community experiences and and makes together um, and then shares. So in terms of grounding this book as a book that is, yes, both about DC and Paris, but is more about how Paris learns from DC and kind of understands, reinterprets, and then is influenced by DC when it comes to punk. How do you think about the book as a kind of, you know, France-America, Franco-American cultural study, right, of this long-standing relationship between France and the US? Like, how did DC and Paris exemplify that when it comes to punk?
1: Well, I think that there's a few different levels of that. There's the Franco-American circulation that has been very active and very prominent for, God, I don't even know. It's it's hard to put a timeline on it because as as long as either country, either republic has existed or like, it, you know, the French Republic has existed for, again, it's hard to put the timeline on that with the French Revolution and then the Napoleonic era, et cetera. But you know, in the, the United States as well, because there's the establishment of the federal United States in 1776. But there was also the early French settlement of Canada and, and New France, and the history of Louisiana Purchase. So it's it's a history that really predates the establishment of modern France and modern United in the modern United States. Um, neither country would exist in its current iteration without the other country, both, you know, politically, socially. And then I think one of the most interesting, one of the most interesting eras for both countries was the uh, interwar era in the 1920s. A lot of American doughboys, uh, especially African-Americans who, um, who fought in world war one and realized that, you know, Jim Crow laws, obviously there was, there was discrimination in Paris, but Jim Crow laws didn't quite exist so much. So there was that, um, there was obviously a huge African-American, like, like the American colony in Paris, which was then, of course, dramatized in the literary front by Gertrude Stein and Ernest Hemingway and so forth. There's so many different chapters, Um, you know, jazz music, for example, like a lot of the punks that like a number of the punks who I met or veterans of the punk scene that I met as part of doing this research were also really big jazz fans, you know, like most of the especially the one, and again, this is where the jokes about aging come in, you know, it's, we're at that point where, you know, we love listening to hardcore, we love reminiscing over hardcore shows we saw in basements, but now we're just like, oh man, I can't wait for that, for that free jazz show next Saturday night at the cafe, drink coffee and listen to, listen to this person wail on the saxophone and not have to worry about getting elbowed in the face, that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, the influence of, of jazz music and, and in, in, in especially in 20th century French history, how important jazz was and other American musical forms were to French popular culture through the 20th century. So, again, why it's so hard to put a to put a timeline on this. So there's certainly a continuity. If you were to look at the hardcore underground in Paris specifically, uh, particularly in the mid 1980s, because a lot of I guess the first two French or at least what a lot of people agree with the first two French hardcore bands who were kind of built specifically in the hardcore punk mold, or I, I met Loss who were probably more influenced by the D beat sound, like uh, discharge or D beat sounds or uh, British bands and Como Son Cat who were very influenced by, uh, by dead Kennedys and by minor threat. Uh, those two bands that emerged in 1983, 1984, which was when many people thought that American hardcore had really fizzled out. Like that was when emo was starting in DC and so you know, when there was one wave would sort of crash in the United States, this new wave would emerge in France. And the French bands don't really have their coffee table books like the DC bands do. You know, now there's there, there's a lot more recognition of the DC hardcore scene than there is the Parisian hardcore scene. But and obviously the exchange or the circulation was was definitely lopsided. I think that the DC scenes, I should say plural, uh, had more of an influence on the french scenes than the other way around but there was absolutely but it was absolutely a circulation it wasn't it wasn't one sided and uh, then like i said there's a continuity between looking at the history of jazz as an underground sort of outsider art form in the 1910s and 1920s in the wake of in the wake of the great war and kind of drawing those parallels or drawing those historical parallels again i start sounding more and more like a historian when i talk about that so yeah one
0: of the kind of threads throughout the book is this idea that, you know, uh, the urban landscape, the relationship between the urban landscape and this um, underground, uh, that there are connections between those two things in Paris and DC, and that there are differences between those two things in Paris and DC. And of course there's a a kind of periodization and a history here, you know, with a scene that develops earlier, um, you know, from the late seventies into the, Early mid '80s uh, in DC, and then you know from the mid '80s to later in Paris. So that's there's change over time in that sense. But they're also very different landscapes. And mm-hmm. I guess I mean again, this is a huge question, but I guess just in terms of thinking about how these are both capital cities, so it seems kind of obvious, right? To if you're going to talk about French punk and American punk, like at some level. Seems like a no-brainer. Like, yeah, talk about Paris, talk about D.C., even though D.C. might not be the first city you think of when you look that, you know, somebody who doesn't know anything about it, people might be like, oh, if you're going to do music in the United States, why wouldn't it be New York or something like that? So you have reasons for connecting D.C. and Paris, but what about the differences between these two places that you explore in the book and how the punk scene and the punk scenes illuminate the urban story um, and landscapes of these two respective cities.
1: Well, I think the big change, especially as far as the last forty years are concerned, is our patterns of gentrification. And in Paris, there's gentrification and there's Embourseau Small, which is which is important to understand. Obviously, that you know the the pattern of suburbanization in the United States by by the '80s, most American cities had already been so decimated by uh, urban redevelopment. Um, you know shifts into public housings, uh, you know what cities were pitching as slum clearance and as to use the to use the uh, elephant in the room term Negro removal mm-hmm. uh, which was you know if you talk to, if you speak to any urban geographer about it, I mean anyone who's schooled in anyone who's read Je- Jane Jacobs, for example, understands the the short-sightedness and the racism inherent in what was going on in the United States in the nineteen. 19- In the 1950s and 1960s, with urban redevelopment. And Washington, D.C., was absolutely kind of in the center of that moment because one thing that I think a lot of people don't think about so much when they think about D.C., again, a lot of outsiders who haven't spent much time there don't, you know, those who don't really think about D.C. as anything other than the federal capital and the Smithsonian museums, they forget that D.C. was segregated. That it was that there were Jim Crow laws extant in D.C. It was the the meeting point of the American North and the American South. Obviously, the North is not exempt from from the history of very uh, stirring stories of racism, <coughs> Boston. But uh, but you know that's that was that's an issue too in American culture where a lot of Northerners and I grew up in the Northeast and a lot of I still have family up there who are kind of malinformed about what the American South is like and you know, how race is discussed in the South. And in fact, when you live in the South, race is something that is actually discussed a bit more comfortably. You, there are obviously going to be people that push back against the removal of Confederate monuments and so forth. But, you know, obviously it's easier for people to throw stones at cities like, you know, like Montgomery, Alabama, where the, and Selma, where these, where these marches happen, where these, you know, kind of pivotal moments for for the, the, the civil rights, very easy to catalog and very easily to dramatize moments in the civil rights era, civil civil rights era of the 60s happened. But people also forget that, you know, Martin Luther King's speech was on the National Mall in D.C. A lot of these far right movements, these far right protests of people who still are convinced by Newsmax that that um, Donald Trump did not lose the election. You know, it, it sort of becomes a platform for the most extreme elements of the society. And the same thing with Paris. Paris also became that because it's the capital city in a very, in a very polarized country, particularly in the 1960s, as many of us are aware, but the 1980s was also a very pivotal time, especially the the emergence of the national front, the skinhead movement. So it kind of became the stage where these conflicts bore out. And I think there are also other chapters in DC's history that, are ignored and even even like people who study washington dc and look at the urban urban history it's i think that dc's history of segregation is pretty underrepresented uh paris as well i mean the the paris it wasn't really until 2005 that i remembered hearing anything about the way that uh algerians were treated in paris and it took those the uprisings in the the Lu uprisings in 2005, when they made headlines in the United States, that's the first time I heard anything about. Oh, I didn't realize that that was a that that was a social thing in Paris. I didn't realize that Algerians were so mistreated and forced into poor housing and given similar treatment that African Americans have been in the United States. So, so there are the parallels. There are the contrasts, certainly, but there are I I would argue there are much there are many more parallels than contrasts. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and I think the book really um, shows that in in a variety of different ways. When it comes to the idea of hardcore, and I, and I am going to ask you to describe hardcore <laughs> oh, <people> sure. <laughs> because I think you know if you listen to this music, you know what you mean. But I think, yeah, again, not to define everything, but like, you know, we say punk, and it it, it includes this whole wide ranging set of sounds and and um, aesthetics or whatever, but hardcore has like a particular, a particularity to it that then, you know, bleeds out into other things and uh, literally bleeds out into other things. Um, But, but um, yeah, you know, that fifth chapter, I guess, I don't know where we are in the sort of order of things, but it doesn't really matter. But that fifth chapter where you talk about hardcore coming to Paris, I mean, I guess I have two questions about that. One has to do with how much, the punk scene that you're interested in the book can be said to have been something that would have come about a a type of music, a set of music and how much we, you know, whether or not DC came to Paris or, you know, but how much that's true, but also how much it's true or fair to say, I think people do this with rap a lot too, that this is American music that then becomes French music. Is that the right way to characterize the story of the punk scene in Paris anyway? And what are the exceptions to that, or I don't know, um, modifiers that you'd add to that to say, yeah, there's a story of you know, either jazz or other types of musical forms in France that leads to punk, uh, maybe the UK, other influences, but yeah. How does DC fit into making a Parisian punk underground and and how where should we stop uh, in terms of thinking about it all coming from either D.C. or the United States more broadly?
1: Okay, well I think one one thing that historians tend to do, and I obviously don't, I'm not a historian by trade, but I I obviously include myself in the guilty parties on this is, you know, romantic, you know, obviously you it's you, tr- you romanticize the past, and even even by by exposing the the scabs in the past, you're in a sense romanticizing it. You're kind of boiling it down to boiling it down to specific points on a specific timeline. Uh, recently, there's an interview in Razorcake magazine with Guy Picciotto from Fugazi and Rights of spring, etc. And and you know a big catalog of other of other musical projects. And Guy himself, by the way, was a French, the old, He was the French speaker in Fugazi, which was a right. big reason why the band did well in France. You know, they were they were very preoccupied rather than other American bands who would go and just not even try to learn French. They had a French speaker in the band who could talk to the crowd in French, and that certainly made a really good impression. But Guy was always very insistent in zine interviews and still is that there wasn't really, you know, the, like the way that people talk about the DC hardcore scene, it was not, it was like there were a lot of people who were, involved in it, but there were just kind of a relatively small handful of bands. Some bands, such as Rights of Spring, only played somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 shows over the course of one summer, lived on through those recordings. Because recordings are the main ways, the recordings are the way that we render the past accessible, to go back to Yifu Tuan. And the ways that, especially in, you know, music scenes or, you know, the musical underground, we tend to, and I, and this is a crazy thing that's been happening to me more recently. I don't know if you could probably relate to this where I'll listen to a record that came out in, you know, like 2009, 2010, or I'll be listening to a band that I still, I consider a contemporary band and then I'll look at the year the record came out and I'll be like, Oh my God, that was 2009. Or that was nine years ago. <laughs> how did that, how did this record get so old? And um, it's, it's sort of, obviously it's a danger when we, when we try to tie the past up, the past up in these nice, neat little, Boxes, but I brought up Pachodo because he's always insistent that it was never that clean. It was never that neat. There were always there were always bands. There were always musicians that are going to go to a hardcore punk show that are going to go and you know make a really great hip hop mixtape, and then they're going to go to a hip hop show. Or they're going to go to a cipher or something like that. And the, the cross-pollination of scenes, again, the emphasis on free space is what enables the cross-pollination of scenes to happen. You know, when you're not necessarily creating music for the purpose of selling plastic to, again, quote Ian McKay, genre doesn't really make a huge difference. If we're going to talk about Bad Brains, talk about how Bad Brains were a very skillful reggae and dub band that also mm-hmm. arguably created hardcore punk, you know. They'd they play the big takeover or they'd play I or they would just play DC and just tear a place up and then they would just go into the chillest reggae song you've ever heard. And the crowd was the crowd was completely in love with that. There was no adherence, there wasn't really as much of an adherence to genre. So it's really hard to say that, you know, DC that they're like a certain, you know, it wasn't I mean, there was obviously certain compilations that made their rounds. There was the the flex your head, you know, that was dubbed onto cassettes that a lot of French punks in the eighties, they would get like a copy of the cassette. They wouldn't know who the band was. They would just hear the song and they would, they would probably wait 20, 25 years before they found out who even sang certain songs that influenced them to play a certain way that they did. But that's, I think a question that's impossible to answer.
0: In terms of what the scene looks like in Paris, Mm -hmm. if we could get, like real concrete about it, like to, for you to tell us about, you know, where this is happening in the city, what the music sounds like. You mentioned earlier that a lot of um, the music is happening in English. And who is participating in all of this? Like, I mean, it's a broader question in terms of punk in general and hardcore in general, you know, that this is a male dominated subculture, that this is a predominantly white underground scene in both places. Um, but yeah, can you tell us and give us a, more of a sense of like the texture of what this urban underground looks like in the city of Paris itself?
1: Pretty much for the entire history of hardcore punk in Paris, there has been similar, similar to DC, especially over the twenty, the course of the twentieth century with gentrification. A lot of it's been defined with trying to find places to play or trying to find you know mm. spaces uh, within the, especially within the um, my French is not not good. Apologies. Peripherique, like within the within the within Paris proper, there are fewer and fewer places, a fewer and fewer DIY spaces, because the city has been so sold out to developers and increasingly militarized, as is what happens when any city becomes gentrified. Mm-hmm. Certain areas of Paris were were always like I, I I'm trying to remember a specific arrondissement um, off the top of my head, but it's not working at the moment.
0: Is it like a more Eastern, Yeah, you know, is it that kind of divide that we would associate with like working class neighborhoods and um, even less, less historically white parts of the city? Like, is that, is that where the punk, is that where punk is happening in the city?
1: When I first went to Paris in 2010, there was a DIY space that my friend who played there it was actually um, a really, a really cool show. It was uh, a friend, a friend of mine, uh, Philippe, who was he had a band, he had an indie band at the time called General Bye Bye and he and his his drummer his uh, drummer Etienne were accompanying Dorian Wood who was a fantastic fantastic genderqueer like piano singer singer performer from L.A. who was on tour in Europe at the time and it was in like a squat in in the eastern side of Paris and I remember Philippe was very adamant that it was the last DIY space that he was aware of. And he'd been playing in bands since he was 13 or 14. And he'd seen kind of one by one a lot of these DIY spaces, which were, in in essence, they're all pretty ephemeral, but especially in a city like Paris, which is so expensive and so uh, increasingly militarized. Same same thing with Washington, D.C. There are fewer and fewer spaces where, where punk and hardcore and that DIY scene can easily exist. And a lot of that's outside of my immediate knowledge base, because a lot of the people who I interviewed, I talked to them about their impressions of D.C. based around hardcore music's history. So there were a lot of people who I spoke to who are still playing, who are still gigging from time to time, but I didn't really get as many opportunities as I would have liked to speak to, uh, for example, teenage fans who are getting into the scene now, like asking them, okay, well, where maybe in the the southern suburbs or the, the western communes outside Paris, uh, this is happening now because a lot of the like the early oi bands like uh l'infanterie sauvage for example came uh they came from Colomb which is a western commune and I'm I didn't get a chance to actually go out to Kolom and speak to anyone out there who who currently lives out there and to see if or what the scene is like in those um in those western suburbs of Paris. So that's a question that's you know outside of my area of knowledge really even of the city i think that uh, that would be a book that i would love to see especially if somebody somebody more like intimately not intimately connected to the contemporary scene were to put something out about that i mean there are, i'm sure there's i'm sure there are anything from facebook groups there are likely and i'm not active on tiktok but i guarantee that i'm sure that there are people active on tiktok that could show where the the hip hop ciphers are happening outside in like Southern or Western Paris, where hardcore shows are happening in and around the city. But, but again, there's, it's generally pretty restricted and a lot of venues as they've always been, have been pretty ephemeral.
0: In terms of the content of the music, the way it's made, recorded, distributed circulated, all of those things, Tyler, there's, there's all kinds of politics in the book specifically Mm -hmm. with respect to music. And then of course, the content of the music, especially in terms of lyrics, is is often po- political. So in terms of the relationship between DC and Paris, and especially in terms of what like French punks are singing about and um, participating in politically, how would you characterize that in the period that you cover in the book uh, of the 80s that you know, you were talking about the broader context of what's happening in France and how that builds on things that, you know, that have been kind of developing uh, and a history that's there since at least the 1960s. In the 80s, in Paris, in this scene that develops, what are people politicized about, whether it's musically uh, or in a broader sense in terms of responding to local gentrification, and then even broader, you know, national politics or international politics? Like, are they singing about the United States? Or are they singing about France? And how does that all come together?
1: Well, one of the rules of thumb, of course, in hardcore was there wasn't really a rule for what you should be singing about. I mean, there was obviously, there might've been social pressure that existed, but I was in Paris last December in 2019. And I had a chance to hang out with Philippe Roses, who was A veteran of the of the Parisian hardcore scene, he was a veteran of the Oi! and hardcore scenes in the '80s, and he still produces he produces some audio documentaries and and worked for um, for national public like the public radio stations and networks in France today. And uh, he and I he and I got together, and he and he told me I think he just sort of in a joking manner he said, "You know, Chromosome Cat's lyrics were just nonsense, right?" And I said. Well, no, because a lot of their lyrics were in French and I and I don't think I had a lyric, I had lyric sheets available to me. But that's also but that's important to keep in mind because a lot of lyrics, for example, you know, Bad Brains, we've we've heard pay to come before, you know, how fast HR sings on that song. And <laughs> Uh, you know, Minor Threat, of course, prioritized putting lyrics in with their stuff, because, you know, they, the lyrics Ian MacKay wrote were very didactic. And so he made it a point to make sure that lyrics were included so people understood his message. But a lot of, especially when someone got a dubbed cassette in 1984 of, of that first Bad Brains album, for example, there might there's not going to be tracklist, there's not going to be titles, there's not going to be lyrics included. So people are largely, especially if English is not your first language, it's likely that you're going to be in the dark as far as what the message of the song is. So obviously, you're going to try to recreate that anger and that aggression in the music. Regarding use of language, um, a lot of French punk bands, even if obviously, in almost all cases, English was not their first language, they would still sing in English because for several reasons. One that I often heard was that a lot of just because a lot of their favorite American and British punk band saying, saying in English, uh, French is a beautiful language for, for rap music. Mm. As far as hardcore goes English, I think just in its structure uh, fit better with those certain styles of music that hardcore bands would play. There wasn't, I, I mean, there was certainly obviously a, the, the, the political, the political angle of things in a lot of French punk lyrics, but just like in, in, American hardcore lyrics. A lot of it is just about freedom. A lot of it is just about like self-actualization. Or in some cases, just like in a lot of American hardcore bands, a band like Chromosome Cat would just basically write these silly lyrics because, again, they're not putting out you know gold records or anything like that. They're recording music for their friends, so they're going to load their songs up with these localisms. They're going to you know stuff their lyrics full of inside jokes and things like that. It, and it's for their audience as an American with very, you know, my, my French, like I said, my French skill is very limited. Some a lot of the French hardcore that I would listen to, you know, even, even chanson music, I would, I would understand chunks of that, but then put a hardcore song in my ears in, in French and I'd be like, okay, I have no idea what they're singing about. Um, so, uh, but, but I don't, I don't, I didn't really sense like a predominantly like different, set of messaging or different approach politically or personally in French hardcore music than in a lot of American hardcore music.
0: What about in terms of, you know, if it's not in the music per se, like what about in terms of what, what people's politics are and what other kinds of things the people who are making this music are participating in? Is there anything in that, that, um, you know, helps us situate uh, the music that is responding to DC and learning from DC in uh, the French context and the Parisian context situated in what's happening in France. Is there anything like that in terms of the ethos, the broader ethos that's at work for the people who are making this music like out, out in the rest of their lives or the world?
1: Well, I think that one of the most interesting stories of any band I've ever heard about, you know, we had 2020, was it 2020 or 2019? I think it was 2019 that we had, uh, you know, the Bohemian Rhapsody uh, high high, heavy fictionalization of the band queen and then rocket man which i i still get to see so there were a couple of which a couple of movies that came out that were very successful that proved that the music the music biopic is still a very viable format there is other than other than just obscurity i am surprised that nobody has made a movie about L'Infanterie sauvage because uh, gino their lead singer who died at age 21 he actually drowned at age 21, before he had an opportunity to publicly renounce his affinity for the skinhead movement, which at the time was in the mm-hmm. early by the early 80s, around the time that the Fontainebleau Sauvage were playing gigs, they were based in Western Paris, like the the communes west of Paris. And, and a lot of this is based on what, what Philippe Roises told me and other, other accounts of uh, what Gino was like. Because there there's photos that Philippe shared of me. Of, I think there's one in the book of him with Gino just kind of goofing around as teenagers. Gino was part, I believe, Cambodian. His um, His mother was a French hippie and his father was, I believe his father was Cambodian, which made it all the more ironic when Gino started wearing swastikas and started to hang out with people who were like, the 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 neo-nazi youth movement and that was actually what led to the breakup of the band because the other members of the band just started to get uncomfortable with who gino was hanging out with his family you know his extended family had lost a lot of a lot of uh, members to the khmer rouge so he was a very he was very heavily influenced by the anti or rock against communism and that rock against communism ha- also had a lot of adherence among the far right, like the National Front, obviously. So a lot of these, a lot of skinhead kids who were, even if they didn't necessarily 100% believe in the, the Nazi movement or they didn't necessarily think of in the way that Johnny Ramone, as much as Johnny Ramone was a was a lifelong Republican, uh, you know, he always said that the swastika was just sort of like a, oh, look how shocking this is, and I'm bad, and it was meaningless. There was, it was really interesting seeing that current kind of flow through and break up the kind of end that first wave of oi music in Paris in the early 80s, like, learn, like hearing those stories. And why I think La Fanthorie Sauvage would make, it, it would make a fascinating biopic is just because it would also kind of capture the zeitgeist of that far right youth movement as it was taking hold in France in the early 80s. And again, we hear so much about that during the Thatcher era in England. We don't really hear as much about that you know, during that time in Paris. And there have been a couple of attempts to make documentaries about the skinhead movement in Paris, but there's, they're very controversial because they, they omitted a lot of key details and key players and a lot of people were not interviewed who should have been interviewed and, and so forth. So everybody I talked to had a strong opinion about like, attempts at kind of capturing that era one of the great tragedies about Gino was that he died before he was able to publicly just sort of distance himself from the from the neo-Nazi movement. What Philippe told me and this is what this is based on what he said is that, you know, he knew Gino's sister and I think Gino had privately kind of admitted to his sister that all the Nazi memorabilia and insignia and things like that were just kind of a joke to him. And he's like, I don't really take that seriously anymore. Before he was ever able to like publicly sort of say that and distance himself, he died. So that is a, again a great tragedy. But I think that the story of Le Fantômy Sauvage could be such an incredible movie. It would be an it, would, it could be like a five part Netflix mini series. It, it could shine a light on that history of the French of the French boy and then hardcore underground that. Um, and could bring a whole bunch of sort of like dilettante fans who suddenly are going onto Bandcamp and just sort of like buying up these these old like French compilations. I think it would be pretty cool, but again, you know, you can't make a movie like that without pissing off a whole bunch of people.
0: My favorite chapter title in the book Tyler is the title of Chapter Six. This is not a fugazi book. That, uh. <laughs> I think you say that earlier. In the, I mean, for various reasons, and yeah, I guess I want to ask you. You know, thinking about uh, the role of Discord Records, thinking about the role of Ian Mackay and all of this, and thinking about the role of Fukazi in this in this story that you're exploring in the book and this conversation and circulation between DC and Paris, um, but also in the book, if you could just say a little bit about. The kind of epic roles that these these people and forces play and how that relates to all the rest that's that's going on during the same period that you're you're looking at in the book
1: yeah if i wanted to if i wanted to write a book about fugazi in france i'm i may have been able to pull that off because i think a big part of it is because fugazi were and, and still are the centerpiece. I think, I think minor threat are still the best selling artists on discord records from the discord catalog, but Fugazi, especially in the early nineties, during that, that boom that punk got like in on the kill taker, uh, did pretty well considering how they had absolutely no major label mechanism behind this promotion. But, uh, because Fugazi are so meticulous, like in, in their, years as a band as a touring unit from roughly let's say 1987 through 2002 which was when I think they played their last gig as Fugazi even though they still the four of them when they're when they're all four in DC they will still hang out and jam occasionally they kept such an elaborate archive of their shows and they recorded they they have board recordings or room recordings or video recordings of so many of their gigs like so many full Fugazi sets are available on YouTube and because because Fugazi were the centerpiece band of discord records There's so much more data available about their time playing in France. They were only one of a I wouldn't say a small handful, but a but a handful like not that many discord bands or DC punk bands at large again there were many great DC punk bands that never were never on discord uh, that that, uh, played in France and had varying levels of success. Uh, you know, shutter to think played in France in 1990 when, when they were still on discord before they, before they left, uh, before they left for a major label Jawbox, I believe we're in the same boat. Uh, scream were actually the first DC punk band to go to Paris. Yeah. They, they played there in 1986 before Fugazi played there for the first time at the end of 1988. But it just so happened that Fugazi has the most accessible, most like kind of deepest archive of information. So that's why I kind of that was a, obviously a tongue in cheek reference to those Fugazi bootleg team <laughs> because they were so against merchandise. Uh, the chapter's title is This is Not a Fugazi Book is sort of a declaration of remember that this is not specifically about any one band. This, has, this is obviously, you know, I spoke to Ian MacKay. He was a huge advocate and a big help in the process of researching and writing the book. But, you know, there were plenty of people who were never even in bands that had a role in the circulation of the music. There were zinesters. There were there were people who just there were various people who came over from Paris in the mid 80s, late 80s, who stayed in the discord house for a couple of weeks and, you know, brought attention to the, those who were living in and hanging out in the discord house in in Arlington, Virginia. You know, there's a great photo, in fact, that I always show. It's it's in the book. It's of Philippe Roses, um, a, a bandmate or, or friend of his who was also playing in hardcore bands sitting on the discord steps of the the, the famous uh, discord porch with ian MacKay and i believe it was 1987 i wanted to use it as the cover of the book but obviously, you know academic publishers and rules and regulations about using images on covers uh, prevented that but the photo is right inside the beginning of the book that captures such a great moment of these two 20 year old french punks who didn't speak english very well just sort of sitting on the steps of the discord house and trying to and just connecting with at the time i want to say 26 27 year old ian MacKay, like right when he was starting fugazi in this very pivotal moment for all three of their lives. And, you know, at this point, Mackay had already sung for Minor Threat. He'd already sung for Embrace. He'd already been over to England. He'd already gone a long way in establishing that international circulation. But then here are these two 20-year-olds from Paris who are in, who are visiting D.C. for the first time. And they had what I would argue was a very, a very important impact on that circulation as well.
0: Well, Tyler, um, I'm really grateful to you for taking all this time to to speak with me. Can I just ask you what you're working on now?
1: I'm working on a few different things right now. Um, As far as what your listeners may be interested in, if you have anybody who is interested in uh, architecture and um, repeat photography, I'm doing a long term I'm not sure what is going to emerge out of this because there's two different sides to the, this project about my great grandfather who spent the 1920s as a jazz musician in Hartford Connecticut and I'm trying to track down any evidence of recordings that may still exist of his bands and I'm and I'm actually working on a paper about whether the recording industry like whether you know calling his orchestras in the 20s like so and so the the Ben Irving Recording Orchestra, whether that was just a way to hype them or if that actually meant that they were recording, if there's a way to prove that. So I'm writing a paper for what might hopefully turn into something for a, uh, you know, maybe a journal about the history of recorded music or the history of underground jazz music. And then in the 1930s, he also, he worked as a traveling salesman. And I have his whole collection of postcards from that era. I've got really preoccupied, both as you know, someone who went there a lot as a kid and spent a lot of time there recently as an adult, the history of Florida. And I've been trying to recreate a lot of these pictures, which I've been, you know, just as sort of like a work in progress Instagram. I started an Instagram for it called Postcards from Irving, where I take the original postcard to the site and I try to recreate the image like standing there with the with the postcard. So that's those have been the two big projects I've been working on. Most recently, ironically, even though the party line on COVID was that oh, COVID's COVID has us all inside and it's and it's uh, giving us all this free time, giving us all this new time to you know work on old projects and write old stories. And unfortunately, it's been very busy for me, so I've been so those have been slow going. But that's what I'm work- That's what I've been working on most recently. And hopefully, 2021 will give me a chance to for those projects to see the light.
0: Well, they both sound super fascinating, and I hope I'll get to hear more about them. Tyler, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing this book.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Roxanne. This was a blast.